Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be joining you guys this morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Jason. If you guys don't know, I'm usually the children's pastor here. Um, and it's, I'm really glad to be sharing with uh, some adults this morning, some of my peers, uh, some people that are a little bit taller than me, right? Um, now, this morning, I want to start off like we do every morning or every week with our shouts. So let's go ahead and start with our shouts. What do we do? Love God and love others. What do we say? I love God and I love you. Awesome, awesome. Now this week, uh, as Pastor Sam shared earlier, we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series called Redefine, where we will follow through the threads of God redefining our non-believing life into a new life in Him. Now this morning, um, obviously I'm going to be the one kicking it off, but this morning uh, we're going to be going through the very first part of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Now, Peter was a man who was once named Simon. Um, He was one of Jesus' most devoted disciples. Peter was, uh, Jesus spoke to Peter more than anyone else in the Bible. It was Peter that rebuked Jesus when he told the disciples he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be arrested. It was Peter who defended Jesus when the Romans came to arrest Jesus. It was Peter, again, who denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times when a servant girl questioned him. It was Peter that swam to Jesus when he appeared before the disciples after his resurrection. Peter was an important part of Jesus' inner circle, and he was an important part of the early church in Jerusalem. But after his time serving in Jerusalem, he was called to share the gospel to other nations outside of Israel. And that's where where we start with this letter this morning. You see, this letter was written to Christians in uh, the country of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey now. And these Christians, they were experiencing a lot of hostility and persecution for being Christians. And this left a lot of them discouraged and confused. You see, Peter wrote this letter as an encouragement to these Christians in the midst of their suffering. And this letter reminds us that Suffering is a part of being a Christian. That suffering is something that we should expect. And this letter tells us how we should live according to that reality. The society that these Christians were living in was against them in every way. They could have easily folded under the pressures of trying to fit in. um, But because of their faith, they stood out and they faced persecution. They were discouraged for what they were experiencing, and Peter wrote to tell them that they need to not be discouraged. So why should Christians be encouraged when the world is against us? What gives us belonging when it seems like we don't belong? And what gives us security in a hostile world? We should be encouraged because God chose to give us salvation, which makes us stand out in this world. The salvation that God gave us is what makes us belong when we don't belong. The choice that God made to give us salvation gives us security in a hostile world. If we could uh, go to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, it says here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ 
and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We see here in the beginning of this letter that Peter addresses himself as an apostle, which meant he walked with Jesus every day on his earthly ministry. He saw, felt, and experienced what it was like to be different in this world. He knew from his time in walking with Jesus that as Christians, although we may live in this world, we do not live for this world. Because of the salvation that God gave, uh, because he... uh, You see, God chose us before we could choose him. He knew us before we were born, and he chose to set us apart. The salvation that God chose to give us is what makes us different. It's what makes us stand out. It makes everything that we believe to be important different than what the world tells us is important. The world tells us that we need to be strong to be victorious. We need to lead with strength. But how oftentimes do we see in the Bible that these weak leaders brought victory to the nation of Israel? The world tells us that we need to hate those that hate us and love those that love us. But but we know that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those that persecute you. The world tells us that we must bet on ourselves and just believe in ourselves and we can achieve anything. But we know that as Christians, that it's through Christ that we can do all things. It is through Christ that he is the source of our strength. So it's no wonder that Christians are different. It's no wonder that we stand out. It's no surprise that something about us just is not the same as everyone else. I'm sure that we've experienced this in our lives too. We may not vocalize that we're Christians. We may not uh, evangelize to every single person who doesn't know Jesus. We may not even tell people we go to church. But there's something different that people see in you, something that makes you stand out, something that people can't quite put their finger on. And sometimes that can make us feel left out, can make us feel alienated and ostracized. And it, it can lead to tense gatherings with your friends and your families. And oftentimes it leads to persecution and discrimination. Now Peter realizes that we've been chosen to receive the salvation. And he helps us see that we should not despair in this reality. So why shouldn't we not despair? What gives us hope in a seemingly hopeless situation? And where should our hope rest in? We should not despair at this reality because of the new life that God has given us. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a hope in a hopeless situation, and we can rest that hope in the inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven. In verse 3, it says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We see in this section of the letter, Peter first and foremost gives praise to God for what he's done. Because for although we were were chosen for salvation, we were not deserving of it. 
We sinners uh, were deserving of death, and it was through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that while we were once dead, we now have a new life. And this new life gives us a living hope that is guaranteed for us in heaven. Now, for most of us in this room, when we hear what Peter wrote, when we hear what Peter is telling us, we've been to church long enough, we've been to enough Bible studies, we've heard enough sermons to understand what he's trying to tell us. But for these exiles, for the the exiles that Peter was writing to, we have to understand that being born again, having a new life, not only meant a spiritual transformation, but also a transformation in their relationships and transformation in their interactions with their communities, with their families, with their friends, with everyone around them. To be a professing Christian during this time would have been very costly, not just socially, uh, but also financially. So for these exiles, being born again hurt. (laughs) And Peter wanted to assure them that they had a living hope that gives them an inheritance that is guaranteed and waiting for them in heaven. But there is a stark difference between um, the earthly inheritance that, that the earth tells us and a heavenly one. In the mid-1800s, the Vanderbilts were considered the, one of the richest families in America. They had a massive fortune of $100 million back in maybe the 1800s, which is equivalent to about $3.8 billion in today's money. The $100 million that they amassed was roughly about 50% of the U.S. Treasury holdings at the time. They were pretty well off. Now, when Cornelius Vanderbilt, the patriarch of the family, passed away in 1877, he left his son William his $100 million fortune. And by, 1850, sorry, and, and by William's death in 1885, he doubled his father's fortune to $200 million. Now, let me ask you, how many millionaires are left in the Vanderbilt family? Anyone take a guess? That many, zero. None. Within 50 years of William passing away, their $200 million fortune was gone. The inheritance that was passed down from father to son, father to son, disappeared. It rotted, it faded, spoiled, it perished. Uh, it caused uh, the inheritance that was passed down was rotted, and the earthly in- investment that they made went away. You see, when we invest in earthly things, it causes us to envy one another, and it breaks down relationships. When we invest in an earthly inheritance, it gives us a false sense of hope that can lead to ruin and misery. But Peter shares that the inheritance that we received is different. This inheritance doesn't spoil, doesn't perish or fade. It's different than any earthly inheritance where it's here today and gone tomorrow and nothing is ever guaranteed. That's because a heavenly inheritance is one that is fully guaranteed. And although we may not see it today in this lifetime, we must have faith that it will be waiting for us when we get to heaven. When we invest in our heavenly inheritance, we find a deeper meaning in our lives, and can use our resources more freely. When we invest in our heavenly inheritance, the hope that we receive does not let us down. It's true, uh, it is a true living hope that allows us to give more freely 
of our time and our money. John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men in history. By age 53, he had a net worth of $336 billion in today's money. He was the richest man to ever live. But at the same age of 53, all he could do was eat crackers and milk. He didn't sleep well. He didn't eat well. He had the best doctors in the world telling him, by age 54, you're probably not going to make it. Realizing that his wealth that he had amassed, that he would not be able to take it with him, in that moment, a living hope in his heavenly insurance was spurred. Inheritance was spurred. You see, all this time, Rockefeller had actually been tithing faithfully to the church ever since he was a young boy. And on his deathbed, he seemingly knew that the wealth that he had amassed in this world was meant to help others. Rockefeller donated $550 million to help churches and, and the needy. Uh, his, his money, his wealth funded medical research that would go on to discover things like penicillin, and he would eradicate hookworm and yellow fever. It was at this point in his life when he decided to give what he had to invest in his heavenly inheritance, his health improved. He began to sleep better, he began to eat well, and he lived to the ripe age of 98. One of the richest men in history, one of the greatest businessmen of all time, was a Christian. He invested in his heavenly inheritance, and he knew that the heavenly inheritance that was waiting for him in heaven was worth all the money that he had. It was his faith in that investment that helped change the world as we know it today. See, it's, it's faith that keeps our hope alive. It's faith that allows us to invest in our heavenly inheritance, and it's our faith that keeps it safe. But what happens when the storms of life come how does our whole faith hold up when bad things happen? How can we have faith when bad things happen to us? Why should we continue to have faith when everything is going wrong? And how can anything good come from it? We can have faith when bad things happen to us because we find joy in knowing that these moments are temporary. We should continue to have faith when everything is going wrong because it is strengthening and refining our faith with the end result being salvation. And that's something that we can rejoice in. We can read through in here in verse 6. It says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter had experienced all kinds of trials while following Jesus. He had experienced the same things that these Christians that he was writing to were experiencing. He had been arrested, he had been beaten, wrongly accused, and nearly executed for sharing the gospel. So when he tells the readers that uh, when bad things happen, that we must find joy, he means it. 
He reminds us that we must find joy in our trials for that when we compare the time of suffering to the future glory that's going to happen, it's temporary and it's really short. Now, there are times where a minute can feel like an hour and an hour can feel like a minute, right? Have you guys ever tried holding a plank for a minute? That's the longest minute of your life, right? Um, and, and at the same time, if you spend time with a friend that you really enjoy with, that an hour can feel like a minute. Things can go by very quickly. See, our perception of time changes depending on the purpose of the task. We know that our lives here on this world compared to eternity, compared to infinity, compared to our life in heaven, it's like this, right? It's very short. It's a very, very temporary time. It's temporary and fleeting, and we know that we can find joy in knowing that these sufferings that happen in our lives will come and go as quickly as they came. When you become a parent, people say your life changes. And I believe it. I believe it. Your, your life changes for the better. Uh, our youngest daughter, Joelle, just turned six months this past week. And I just can't believe she's already been around for six months. Um, and when they say no two children are the same, I, it's true. It's 100% true. Um, Ellie, our oldest daughter, uh, when she was a baby, she's a great baby. She ate well, slept well. She didn't cry very much. Uh, She was very independent and perfect baby, right? (laughs) But our youngest daughter is completely different than Ellie. Joelle, for the first few months, things were great. Things were perfect, right? By the first month, she was sleeping through the night. Um, She ate well. She slept well. She was very calm. But uh, around Christmas weekend, something changed. (laughs) It was as if... Something had taken over her. It got to the point where we had to go to the doctors, and you know she was just crying, and she wouldn't sleep well, she wouldn't eat well. And we asked the doctors to make sure we went to the doctors to make sure everything was okay. So when we went to the doctor's office, they, they the doctor came in and checked her out, gave her a look, and then they looked at us and said, "There's nothing wrong with her." This is just who she is, right? Now, I hear from a lot of parents that we need to cherish these moments, cherish these years, that these years go by so quickly. And while I, I believe them, and I know it's true, it's sometimes hard to, uh, to practice it in reality, right? There are times when it's really hard to find joy in my little baby crying at 3 in the morning, un- inconsolable, right? And although it's hard, I I tell myself, I have to enjoy this. I'm going to miss this, that that I need to find joy in this, that I need to hold on to this moment. And this is how Peter wants us to face the trials that come up in our lives, too. We know it's going to suck. We know it's not going to be fun. We know that it's going to be really hard. But we are called to find joy in these moments because we know that they will pass quickly. When we experience trials in our lives, our faith becomes stronger. And it's through the fire that something can be refined and purified. Now, the uh, analogy that Paul makes here, the, the, the example that Paul gives us here, is that of gold. 
Now, gold is a precious metal, and it's something that we have to mine from the earth. And like all precious metals uh, that we use today, uh, the final product that we get from the mine is not what we use in things like jewelry or electronics. See, most gold that we mine is around 65 to 85% pure gold. In order for us to get to that 99.9% purity, you need to refine that gold. It needs to be heated up in a crucible and to the point where it's melting so that all the impurities can be taken out. In the same way, when we experience troubles and trials in our lives, the, faith, uh, the fire of those trials brings up the impurities in our faith and can be taken out. In basketball, experience is everything. When a young team reaches the playoffs, they're not expected to win. They must suffer a loss before they can win. This is a narrative that we hear often, right? If you guys are sports fans, this is a narrative you hear often. They're too young. They don't have the experience. And to be honest, they're right. Most of the time, these young teams, they have to lose in order to win. They have to suffer a loss. They have to be able to endure through these pains in order for them to come out as champions. Without uh, suffering a loss, maybe the team might not be able to reevaluate their coaching or their players. Without the bitter taste of defeat, they wouldn't be as motivated to or willing to, sac- be, to sacrifice for their team. Without the agony of coming up short, the team won't know what it takes to get to that next level. You see, young teams have to go through these trials in order to grow. And growth is what's required in order to get to that next level. You see, experience matters in the same way that as a team overcomes a trial, when we overcome trials in our, in our faith, it is refined and purified. And that faith is what gives us salvation. So why should we be concerned with this salvation? And what makes this salvation that we received so special? The salvation that we have received was prophesied and fulfilled long ago. And we should be honored for the privilege of experiencing the gospel. It tells us in verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of grace that has come to you, search intently and with the greatest care. You find out the time and circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing them when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that they now have been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now, the Apostle Peter could have continued speaking on the trials that these Christians were facing, but instead he shifts his focus on salvation and the depths that we should have an understanding of. See, although the prophets that Peter is speaking about here didn't know who Jesus was, his spirit was with them when they were searching. The prophets studied and searched knowing that they would not see this day. The day when Jesus, the Messiah, would die and rise again. You see, we have seen the life and death and resurrection 
of the Messiah where the prophets could only imagine it in their day. With all our suffering, with everything that we experience, we have something more than so many who lived before us could have experienced. We have the complete revelation of God in Christ, preserved and given to us by His Holy Spirit. See, the prophets were shown just a glimpse of the grace that we've received. They saw the forgiveness that was offered to us freely without any sacrifice or any rituals. This is something that they longed and they searched for because it was so much better than anything that they had ever seen. And although that they, they found that Jesus was the Messiah, would come not as a savior, but a suffering king, they saw that the glories that would come from Jesus' suffering. And we see these being fulfilled uh, in his death and resurrection to give us a new life. The prophets searching for the salvation knew that they would come through a suffering Messiah. And they longed to see that salvation that they had prophesied. But we see that it was meant for a future people. But the thing is, Jesus wanted them to search for it faithfully, even though they were never going to experience it. We oftentimes don't know the full plan of God, but he wanted us to know him and the salvation that was meant for us. Not for the angels or the prophets, but for us. You see, God saved us before we need saving. He saved us by sending Christ to die on the cross for us. He saved us to die by sending Jesus to die on the cross before we even needed saving. God did what we could not do on our own for his good and for his glory. So I hope that as we understand what Peter is sharing with, in the, with these suffering Christians, that we remember that we've been chosen to receive salvation we were undeserving of it so that we can have a heavenly inheritance that gives us joy in our trials and the privilege of experiencing the gospel. Amen. Why don't we all stand as we sing this last song together?